0: I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online uh, events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the US Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's lecture. Today's lecture is part of the Phelan um, Family Lecture Series, which is made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy Phelan Foundation. And I'm delighted that John Phelan is in the audience today joining us, alas, like all of you, from a safe and socially responsible distance. John, it's very good to have you with us today. When we scheduled today's lecture with Professor uh, Joseph Nye, the social, political, and economic landscape in the United States look quite different. Uh, today, the country is in the grips of three intersecting crises. A health crisis that has killed over 100,000 Americans, an economic crisis that has thrown more than 40 million out of work, and now a social crisis triggered by the death of George Floyd in police custody. All of these crises raise vexing questions, but the massive protests and unrest in America's cities have really put questions of moral leadership front and center in American life in a way that has drawn parallels to the 1960s. It has also reminded many, many of us that how America conducts itself at home matters internationally. Intentionally or not, its moral conduct is always on display. Foreign policy often begins at home. And today's lecture on the role of ethics and moral reasoning in U.S. foreign policy could not be more timely. We also could not be more fortunate to have um, one of America's leading thinkers and writers about foreign policy with us to help us think through these issues. Joe Nye has taught for many years at Harvard University, where he is the University Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus and the former Dean of the Kennedy School of Government. Joe was trained at Princeton, Oxford, and Harvard he served in Washington, D.C. as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and Deputy Undersecretary of State. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the British Academy, and the American Academy of Diplomacy. He's published widely over the course of a very distinguished career and is especially well known for his writings about American foreign policy and the role of power in world politics. These include some 15 books, the most recent of which is the subject of today's lecture, Do Morals Matter? Presidents in Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. Before we begin, let me say a few words about today's format, clearly different than what we would normally be doing at the LSC. Joe is gonna kick things off. We're then gonna turn to questions. I've invited two very special guests to join us today to put the first questions to Joe. Mick Cox, Professor of International Relations Emeritus and co-director and founder of LSE Ideas, and Leslie Vinjamori, head of Chatham House's Americas program and an associate professor of International Politics at SOAS. Mick, Leslie, great to have you here with us today. Uh, After Leslie and Mick have a friendly go at Joe, we'll then open it up for questions from all of you in the audience. You can send your questions in via the chat function, the Q&A function on Zoom, and I and the US Center team will do our level best to put as many of those questions, your questions, uh, to Joe. Normally at this point in the opening, I would ask, (laughs) all of you to put your hands together to give Joe one of those very warm LSE welcomes. That, of course, is not possible today. But I know many of you have eagerly been anticipating this event. We have topped out with a thousand people registering for it. So in lieu of applause, I encourage all of you to put questions to Joe to pose questions in the Q&A period. Joe, with that, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's really great to have you with us today.
1: Thank you very much, Peter. It's great to be back at LSE, uh, even if it's only virtually. Um, I was commenting and facetiously to my wife the other day that I'd just given a speech on four continents and had not wasted a single liter of aviation fuel, and maybe there was some silver lining in this current pandemic after all. Uh, but frankly, I'd much rather be at LSE physically uh, and see so many of my old friends there. But life is what it is. Let me turn to uh, to the book uh, that you mentioned, uh, Do Morals Matter? Uh, and uh, I should tell you that many people think I'm wasting my time or did waste my time in writing such a book. Uh, The conventional wisdom in our field is that no, morals don't matter that much in international relations. Uh, And in fact, one friend, when I told her that was what I was writing about, said, well, good, at least it'll be a short book. Uh, In terms of of, uh, the conventional wisdom, people generally will say things like, uh, it's all about national interests, Uh, and I remember once when I was working in the State Department on some nuclear proliferation issues, uh, talking to a French diplomat after a meeting, and I said, do you ever worry about or think about the moral implications of these issues? And he said, no. He said, morals don't matter. He said, the only thing I I care about is the interests of France. And I don't think he realize what a profound moral judgment he had just made. But that's pretty much the conventional wisdom. Um, the, I think most people would say, well, interests bake the cake and then politicians come along and they sprinkle a little moral icing on top to make it look pretty. But, the, uh, but it's interests that bake the cake. Um, I think that if you have that cynical view, you're actually going to get history wrong that uh, that there are some circumstances where the moral views of the leader uh, the American presidents that I look at in the period since 1945 actually determined the outcome or another way of putting it is that uh, these moral views were a crucial ingredient in the cake not just some icing sprinkled on top so I have two purposes in the book uh, one is to if you want proven existence theory, uh that I can show you some instances in history, uh, particularly looking at the 14 case studies I have of American presidents since 1945, I can show you some case studies where the outcome was significantly determined by the moral views of the president. Not all cases, obviously, but if I can show you some that are important, that serves that purpose of the book. Uh, A a good example of this probably would be Harry Truman uh, and the nuclear uh, bombing uh, or non-bombing that occurred during his presidency. Many people blame Truman for uh, his bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. um, And uh, indeed, a very distinguished British moral philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe, refused to attend the uh, the ceremony at Oxford where Truman was given an honorary degree in 1948 because of Truman's bombing of, uh, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but the story is more complex than that. What people don't realize is that Truman, when he participated in the atomic bombing uh, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was doing what General Groves, the head of the uh, Manhattan Project, which built the bomb, He was like a a boy on the back of a toboggan that was already speeding downhill. Uh, Possibly he could have stopped it, but not very likely. Roosevelt had never consulted him about this, and the conventional wisdom of the government as a whole was that we would go ahead. But what people don't uh, pay enough attention to is that there was a third bomb, which didn't get dropped. It was sitting on Tinian Island, and there would have taken about a week to have actually prepared it and dropped it. Truman said no. And he said no, because in the words he used, uh, which were morally uh, important words, I'm not gonna kill that many more women and and children. So uh, that is interesting that there were two bombs, uh, sort of pre-planned, but not a third bomb. The other thing that's interesting is in five years later, in the Korean War. After the Americans uh, pushed back up to the Yalu River, China crossed the Yalu, pushed the Americans back down the peninsula, Uh, it looked like the war would be lost or at least stalemated, and uh, Truman was warned that that would be the end of his presidency. And uh, General MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, who was the commander in chief in uh, the Far East, said to Truman, if you allow me to drop uh, 25 to 40 atomic bombs on Chinese cities, I'll win this war for you. And Truman said, no. Uh, He said, no, I'm not going to kill that many more people. He tried to explore options to see whether there was a way to do it. But basically, the decision he made had a good chunk of moral uh, concern involved in it. And as Thomas Schelling, the Nobel uh, laureate economist, uh, once put it uh, in his Nobel speech, uh, the nuclear taboo that we were treating nuclear weapons for deterrence and not for normal war fighting purposes may be one of the most important things that's occurred internationally in the period after 1945. And that was a decision that could have gone either way. And the fact that Truman's moral views helped to push the decision toward the taboo of non-use of nuclear weapons uh, is of tremendous importance. So the cynics who say it's all just interests that bake the cake and moral views don't matter uh, have a hard job trying to explain away uh, that decision, but I illustrate some others in the book uh, as well for for the other presidents. So one purpose of the book is essentially, as I said, an existence theorem to prove that if you have the cynical view that morals don't matter in international relations, you're going to get history wrong in some important cases. The second purpose of the book, though, was um, so what? What do we do about it? In other words, once you say that morals do matter, answering the question in the title, um, what about the... uh, uh, way we should think about it? What's the right way to make judgments? And all too often, Americans turn toward uh, something that historians have called American exceptionalism. Uh, We are a moral people. Uh, We have good motives and good intentions. When we do something, therefore, it's moral. Uh, This is very shallow reasoning. Anybody who holds that view has to explain to Mexicans and Philippines, uh, how we behaved toward them in the 19th century. Uh, and so moralism or exceptionalism is not the answer. Indeed, too much moralism in which you don't pay attention to the consequences can lead to, uh, to very immoral consequences. So what I propose in the book is that instead, we think in what I call a three-dimensional framework. We try to look at the dimension of intentions, means, and consequences, all three, and try to balance them out uh, as a way to appraise the morality of a policy or an action. So for example, when uh, George W. Bush um, uh, invaded Iraq, his press secretary, Ari Fleischer, said you had to admire Bush's morality because of its moral clarity. He was proposing a freedom agenda. He was gonna save the Middle East from the terrors of Saddam Hussein with nuclear weapons, but also the scourge of terrorism uh, by having democracy come to Iraq. I argue that that's extremely shallow moral reasoning. And I use a simple uh, uh, example drawn from everyday life or could be everyday life imagine that your uh, daughter was studying for uh, exams have had very important exams on a saturday morning the friday night there was a dance and uh, she was out of the dance and a friend of yours said oh don't worry i'll pick her up and i'll make sure she gets home early so there's plenty of time for the dance Uh, and also plenty of for them. Your friend picks her up, uh, uh, doesn't notice that there's been a, a rainstorm, the roads are slick, and uh, speeds at 70 or 80 miles an hour on the narrow roads, uh, skids off the road and hits a tree, and your daughter is killed. Would you say, but her, his intentions were good, and therefore it was a moral action? Of course not. You'd say there was inappropriate means, and inadequate attention to possible uh, immoral, unintended consequences, so the action as a whole was immoral, even though his intentions were good. I would argue that's a pretty close metaphor with what Bush did in Iraq. Uh, Let's grant for argument's sake that Bush did indeed Care about uh, a freedom agenda and uh, and about preventing Saddam from getting nuclear weapons. Pose's intentions were good, nonetheless. On the means that he used in the invasion of Iraq and the efforts to bring democracy to Iraq, um, there was inappropriate means, and uh, there were a number of papers that were prepared by the uh, State Department and by the intelligence community warning of that, but they were all discarded. They were ignored. And of course, in terms of consequences, uh, Bush had totally uh, disproportionate, unintended, immoral consequences. The net effect was you could get rid of Saddam Hussein, but you couldn't bring uh, democracy to Iraq in a way that was going to prevent terrorism. In fact, uh, what happened was Bush's invasion of Iraq actually uh, revived al-Qaeda in Iraq, which later uh, uh, morphed into ISIS, the Islamic State, which, of course, had horrendous immoral consequences. So in that sense, if we look at uh, Bush's morality in terms of the invasion of Iraq, his good intentions aren't enough. You also have to think of the means and the consequences. So what I try to do in the book is to lay out a framework in which you can examine all three of these dimensions. Let me say a word or two about each of them uh, before concluding. On intentions, uh, people sometimes look at the words that politicians use or leaders use and say, oh, you know, they're always good intentions. And that's not surprising. In a democracy, you're not going to tell people you tend to do bad things. The question is, what were the real motives that went beyond the stated intentions that drove an action? Uh, For example, uh, if you take the case of Vietnam, the Vietnam War, uh, John F. Kennedy put in 16,000 American advisors but refused to let them have a combat role. And his national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, later said that he thought that if Kennedy had been reelected rather than assassinated, Kennedy would have withdrawn from Vietnam in 64. Uh, and he said the reason is that Kennedy cared about being seen as smart. His motive was to be seen as smart. Lyndon Johnson, who Bundy also served, uh, basically, uh, escalated to a situation where you had uh, nearly half a million American soldiers in Vietnam and uh, in a full combat role and turned out to be a disaster. And Bundy's argument is the reason for why Johnson acted so differently from Kennedy was that Johnson feared, above all, being seen as a coward his Texas background, the tension between his schoolteacher mother and his uh, uh, macho Texas politician father, meant that Johnson couldn't, he couldn't, even though he realized that the war was a losing proposition, he couldn't bring himself to be seen as the man who lost Vietnam. And the net effect of that was that the emotional Intelligence of Kennedy versus Johnson led to very different outcomes in terms of the actual intentions that were brought to bear on the case. Uh, one man wanting to be seen as smart, the other one wanting to avoid being seen as a coward. So, intentions matter, but we have to be careful in attention when we judge intentions to go beyond the surface impression of just nice words. Uh, to go to means, um, there are at least two traditions by which we can judge the appropriate means or the morality of means in international relations. Uh, One is the long tradition of just war theory going back all the way to Augustine, which becomes secularized in international humanitarian law and indeed is built into the American Uniform Code of Military Justice. And that says you have to discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, and avoid damage to non-combatants, and you have to use proportionality. Uh, so, for example, if you locate a terrorist in a building that has a uh, hundred families in it, and the terrorist is in the basement, but you know that if you drop a big enough bomb, you can actually kill the terrorist in the basement, but at the price of killing the hundred families, no, that's immoral. Uh, that's not proportional. So that tradition of uh, proportional and discriminate means, uh, which comes down through just war theory, uh, is one of the criteria we look at when we judge the morality means. That goes back to, say, Michael Walzer in his works on just war theory. But there's another dimension that can be added, and that's the liberal dimension, which traces itself back to uh, John Stuart Mill and British liberalism of the 19th century, But in the 20th century, it was given its most articulate expression by the uh, philosopher John Rawls, uh, in which he said you can't have pure liberalism, in international relations, but you can have some respect for the autonomy and sovereignty and institutions and rights of other people. And Rawls then adds some criteria by which you can achieve that. So what I do when I look at means is say is, yes, look at, just war theory for the use of force, think about rights and institutions. Finally, when we look at the third dimension, consequences, we have to face the fact that there are always unintended consequences in complex uh, social actions and that foreign policy is doubly complex because you have not just domestic considerations but international considerations of differences of culture and power to include as well so they're bound to be unintended consequences and at some point uh, those unintended consequences can have uh, immoral effects however the key question is whether you paid sufficient attention to anticipating the unintended consequences, uh, what lawyers call, did you do due diligence? Uh, and in that sense, uh, your argument has to be that, yes, there are going to be consequences, both good and bad, and I can't fully predict all of them. But if I've done an adequate job of due diligence, then that should suffice. Arnold Wolfers, the famous Swiss-American realist politician after World War II, one of my favorite uh, realists, uh, said, when we judge morality in foreign policy, we ask whether the leader did the best that the circumstances would allow. And that's not a bad way to start thinking about it, but it's a bit uh, elastic. You can squeeze an awful lot in there. So what I tried to do was create some scorecards which would allow you to look in a more refined way at each of those three dimensions. And the circumstances make a big difference. They'll vary. For example, some people will say um, international relations has no sovereign state, uh, no larger government. uh, Therefore, it's anarchic. Everyone has to defend themselves. Uh, Therefore, those circumstances mean that uh, it's a survival of the fittest, uh, pure Hobbesian world. And there are some summons when that's the case. When Winston Churchill was faced with the fact after Hitler had uh, taken over Vichy France, that the loss of the French fleet and its addition to German naval power might prevent the Royal Navy from protecting the British islands, Churchill actually bombed his French ally and killed 1300 French sailors. And his argument was this was essential for the survival of the British people for whom I was the trustee. A horrible act, but understandable in the circumstances as Wolfers put it. But there's a big difference between taking extreme cases like that and saying that's what all of international politics is about. It's not. Most of international politics is not about survival. Uh, it's about uh, rights, institutions, welfare, assistance, and so forth. Uh, so that when Donald Trump, uh, in the uh, consulate of the Saudi embassy, a uh, consulate of Saudi Arabia in the in Istanbul, uh, when Trump said, "Well, it's a rough world out there. Get over it." Uh, Even the conservative Wall Street Journal criticized him for not expressing American values. Trump mentioned the fact that we had interests in oil, in arms sales, and stability in the region. True, nobody says you would have bombed Saudi Arabia or broken off diplomatic relations. But you could have made a statement. You could have recalled the ambassador. You could have cut back on some of the weapons that were being sent for the war in Yemen. There are a lot of things which were possible to do short of breaking relations. In that sense, what Trump was doing was treating the murder of Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate like Churchill's circumstances of dealing with the defection of the French fleet to Germany in 1940. And once you start treating everything the same, you lose the prospect for moral action. So for people who are realists, um, I say, look, I'm a realist too, but I believe you start with realism. You don't stop there. In other words, what you do is you first have to think of what is necessary for survival of my people under the circumstances. After all, leaders are trustees for their people. But just because you start there doesn't mean you stop there. You have to then go on to say, can I also consider human rights? Can I consider uh, other interests uh, and values? And uh, that, I think, is where I part company. I say start with realism, but uh, you can add other things. And it's when you add the other things that you can begin to see some circumstances which will allow morality to play a role in foreign policy. So, to summarize that, let me say that um, uh, when I looked at the 14 presidents, I developed scorecards along these three dimensions. And of the 14 presidents, um, I came out ranking uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and the first President Bush, George H.W. Bush, in the cup quartile. Uh, I ranked uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Richard Nixon, uh, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump, pending uh, some change before the end of his term, but on the record so far, uh, in the bottom quartile. And the rest were spread out in in between with uh, merits and demerits on various aspects of the scorecard. But what I say in the book is that the the actions or the, the judgments that I come to are really not that important. Uh, I want people to make their own judgments. What I want them to do, though, is to think in three dimensions, to think carefully as to make these judgments. Uh, as I say in the book, um, I may be biased in my judgments. Uh, I may reserve the right to change my judgments in the future as I encounter new information. So I'm much less concerned that people agree with me on how i rank any particular president president then that as they think about morality in the international politics a they first accept that in some cases it can make a big difference and b when they try to say how they're judging whether it made a difference or not think carefully in three dimensions and don't just retreat into exceptionalism or good intentions or or simple consequentialism in which you say it works therefore it was good all those are logical non-sequiturs and so the book is an appeal for an improvement in our moral reasoning I would add I think uh, we actually need some of that today anyway that's the reason for the for the book what I tried to accomplish and I look forward to uh, to the Q and A, because that's the more interesting part of the uh, morning for
0: me. That's great. Joe, thank you very much. That was a terrific um, kind of overview summary of, um, um, of the book. And, and I think most people that read the book know that the, the point is not so much how you score people, but in the book, as you state clearly, that's not what matters. It's it's going through the process, the reasoning that really matters um, the most. I have a question, but I'm going to discipline myself. I have 24 hands already raised. Um, mm-hmm. So they're coming in fast and 25, fast and furiously. But I want to go to both Leslie and Mick uh, first. And Leslie, why don't I start with you and, and let you put the first question to, uh, to Joe. I'll let Joe respond, and then we'll turn to Mick and do the same thing, and then we will open up the platform. I have already have questions lined up here from, from students. So, Leslie, the, I was going to say the floor, but the platform is yours. Uh,
2: I should say, um, first of all, thank you. It's an honor to, to be speaking with you. Um, I'm very glad you wrote the book. I'm very glad that you that you um, didn't stop with the conventional wisdom or stop with realism as important as I agree with you that that framework certainly is. Um, I guess i I sort of want to ask you your reflections a little bit more on the question of means. Um, and that is um, in part, I guess because I you know I've spent a lot of time at at Peter's favorite institution, the LSE, and I'm reminded of many of the conversations over the years that have called America out for not thinking carefully in this category of means about international means, about the UN Security Council, um, about collective authority for sanctioning the use of force. And I'm curious when you think about means, what that means to you. And I guess it raises a broader question, of course, of the standards that are attached to um, confirming what's considered to be moral uh, reasoning, a moral action in foreign policy have changed a lot over the course of the 14, um, over the course of the presidents that you've looked at. So how does that affect your work? And of course, I'm also reminded of of something that Adam Roberts said when he visited Georgetown in 2003 and he spoke about Iraq and he said, you know, in the long run, Regardless of the fact that that action was not authorized by that second U.N. Security Council res- resolution that was lacking, if it turns out well, people will you know assess it very differently than if, than if it turns out poorly. So do you think um, consequences matter differently for how most people look at foreign policy? Set aside the realist, right? Think about the public than perhaps what you're suggesting. And secondly, you're very silent and fair enough. It's only one book. you've written many. Um, but you're very silent about the domestic side of foreign policy. And I know that this is something that we all cite you for, soft power and many, many other things. But what happens? How does that factor? And does it matter? The soft side, what, what people look, when they look back at America, they talk about America's hypocrisy. You can do as much good as you want in the world. You can hit all the measures of Professor Nye's assessment of moral action. But if what you're doing at home doesn't mirror your goodness abroad, Um, it basically undercuts your action.
1: Well, those are great questions, Leslie, and and, um, I can almost write another book answering them. (laughs) Um, Consequences and means interact. Indeed, um, uh, all three dimensions interact. That's why giving a a, a balanced uh, judgment uh, is not as easy as it first looks. Um, Sometimes when things turn out well, as Adam Roberts said, people will say, well, it turned out well, therefore it's okay. Uh, But not necessarily. Um, You can still uh, feel that uh, uh, something was wrong uh, and people often do express that, Uh, but it is true. There is an interaction between the two. Uh, For example, Richard Nixon um, uh, carried out the Vietnam War even though he knew it was a losing proposition because he wanted to have the consequence of what he called a decent interval. The decent interval was the time between when uh, he uh, basically left uh, Saigon and before the uh, Hanoi took over. Uh, And that was for the credibility of the United States. As it turned out, the decent interval amounted to about two years. Um, And for that, he killed or sacrificed 22,000 American uh, troops and uh, countless Vietnamese lives. So you could say the consequences are that he got out of Vietnam, but the means were a prolonging of a deal. And you can ask yourself the question, is it really worth 22,000 lives, not to mention the Vietnamese lives, uh, to buy two years, when in fact the net outcome in Vietnam was uh, Vietnam has more or less uh, been able to reconcile with the U.S. Why Why did we have to kill that many people, use those means for the outcome where today a Vietnamese invite the American Navy to use Vietnamese harbors. Um, I think that's an, an illustration of the interaction between means and consequences. Uh, there are some people by respect who think that, uh, that Nixon's actions were appropriate. Uh, I don't, um, but it it is a, an illustration of the point you're making that, that there is a constant interplay between means and consequences in that uh, uh, is often carried out not just among theorists, but in domestic politics as well. And the domestic politics brings up the point uh, uh, that that you make about uh, uh, soft power. Uh, if you look at the uh, ability to affect others, to get uh, what you want, which is what I call soft power, the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment, Um, How you behave at home, as well as abroad, is tremendously important. Nothing dissolves soft power more than hypocrisy. And when you're seen as hypocritical, you're basically throwing away an important uh, dimension of your power, an important aspect of soft power. That's one of the reasons why um, even the Wall Street Journal criticized Trump's response on Kosovo. Uh, it would have been quite possible to have said this is an outrageous, immoral act and we condemn it, even if it didn't lead to breaking relations. Um, but as for domestic politics, uh, what we're seeing in the last three years since uh, Trump came into office is as is a great diminution in American soft power as bar- measured by public opinion polls like Pew Charitable Trust or Gallup or so forth. And um, that basically is a clear illustration of where uh hypocrisy at home or a praise America first narrowly interpreted uh, becomes a uh, a cost to our power internationally and uh, certainly, if you look at the uh the recent events in the aftermath of uh, the uh, rioting and protests that followed the uh, murder of uh, of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, uh, you can see that it's having a very negative effect on American soft power. Uh, similarly, the the ineptitude in which the Trump administration has handled the pandemic uh, crisis uh, has damaged American soft power. Um, So I I think it's very clear that um, what's going on domestically and domestic politics uh, can have a major effect on your soft power. Uh, One thing to remember on this, though, is that soft power comes not just from the actions of the government, but it also comes from the civil society. And that means that there's potential to recover soft power. For example, in the uh, early 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, the United States was wildly unpopular around the world because of the government policies in Vietnam. But even more interestingly, uh, when protesters were marching in the streets around the world, uh, they were singing Martin Luther King's Ah, uh, we shall overcome, not the Communist International. So, another is an aspect of American civil society—the ability to protest—actually uh, helped to restore American soft power, even when the government was taking actions which were tending to undercut it. But anyway, that's it. There's a whole book to be written there. <laughs> but in, in good questions,
0: very good. Let's go to um, to to Mick.
1: Yeah. Uh,
3: Hi there, Joe. Very nice to see you again, virtually. Uh, I was going to give, in a sense, play the realist. Maybe Peter will want to do that uh, later on. I want to suggest possibly that realism itself could be seen as a a kind of morality, having a moralism, a moral base. I think you may or may not disagree with that, but I mean, realists like Hans J. Morgenthal, whom I, I think both you and I would have a great admiration for, you know, his books are full of full of notions of morality and, and what moralism, and that what realists essentially are saying is don't use force indiscriminately. Beware the overuse of intervention. Recognize limitations. Uh, do no harm. Non-intervention. And that in the end, it's better to have peace rather than war. And that's a kind of morality, is it not? I think, you know, uh, realists can sometimes get a bad bad rap on this one, I think, sometimes. Uh, and you remember the debate on the Iraq War, which you mentioned earlier on in 2001, 2003. I remember a very large number of realists at the time, including our old combat uh, <laughs> IR friend uh, John Mearsheimer, leading leading the charge, attacking the Iraq War on realist grounds, but which I thought in the end really had quite a strong moral, moral component core. So that's my kind of broad question as a supplementary to that, totally different, I'm beginning to wonder, Joe, going through the current crisis that my country is going through and yours is quite clearly in the world, I'm beginning to wonder whether competence isn't more important than morality, because I'm getting the, the feedback from so many people. I would really much prefer to have competent governments rather than ones that we've actually got at the moment. Anyway, Joe, again, thank you very much. Good to see you in such such good shape.
1: Mick, it's great to see you, an old friend. Um, I, I actually agree with you. I, one of the things that has um, beset the study of international relations is this uh, pigeonholing or putting everybody in either a realist or a liberal or a constructivist or cosmopolitan hole and then thinking that answers anything. In the real world, all of those theories have something to contribute. Um, with different proportions in different circumstances. Uh, you know, in that sense, um, I agree with you. There's no contradiction between realism and morality. And what I say in this book is that basically uh, start with realism, uh, and, but don't end there. My concern or complaint with many of my realist colleagues or friends is that they think that having made a point about international anarchy that answers everything. And it doesn't, it starts the conversation. But if you don't start with realism you're, and you just start with idealism, you're gonna wind up uh, with the proverbial, the hell to, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, and uh, that's not enough. So I, I call myself a, a, a liberal realist uh, and my major message is, uh, don't stop with realism, but certainly start there. So you and I are in, in agreement on that. On the question of, uh, of uh, competence, I think that's also uh, we're in agreement that, that uh, gross incompetence uh, can, um, can lead to highly immoral consequences. Uh, not only does it have the real power consequences that Leslie mentioned that if you're grossly incompetent, Uh, it's going to reduce your reputation, which reduces your soft power. Um, But it also can lead to uh, immoral aspects. Go back to my little example about the road accident, the incompetence of the driver and failure to appraise the slippery conditions and adjust speed to the conditions. That incompetence led to highly in moral consequences. So I agree, and I think we're in agreement on both those points, Uh, but very often they're not expressed that as clearly as you made it uh, in some of the debates.
0: Okay, that's wonderful. I'm gonna try to open it up here. Joe, you, you know, we've got a lot of folks watching here, obviously in the UK and in the United States, but we have people watching from Norway, Portugal, Nigeria, Iran, Hong Kong, Colombia, Palestine, Finland, Ecuador, and India. I'm sure there are probably others coming online. So, you know, um, I think there's a, a great appetite and thirst for, um, for thought, for for thinking on this particular topic on moral leadership and and particularly its connection to the United States. I want to take two of the questions right away. We're already up to 40 questions here. I'm gonna start with Teresa from um, Hong Kong. She's an LSE, um, BSC student in international relations. Her question is, how would you, Professor Nye, evaluate the role of ethics in America's relationship with China in recent years, e.g., Hong Kong, trade war? And then on a, taking on a different tact Andrew Barry who's a student at American military university has this interesting question. Are the impacts of moral judgments unique to superpowers or are smaller nations similarly affected by moral qualifiers in diplomatic and foreign policy decisions?
1: Well, I think the questions are both interesting. Um, the the last chapter of my book actually has uh, is devoted to what I say are going to be the big moral questions of this century and one of them is how the United States manages its relationship with China uh, what worries me is that the Americans tend to uh, categorize either or it's either a uh, a new cold war or it's a warm friendship and the reality strategic competition at the same time that we can have cooperation. And for example, if you ask, should the Americans agree on China's position on the South China sea? Uh, no, the, uh, basically the Chinese vision is uh, contrary to laws declared by the international tribunal of the Hague. And there's good reason to send freedom of navigation, naval operations, through the claimed waters of these artificial islands Uh, that's strategic competition or rivalry Uh, at the same time if you ask uh, should we be cooperating with china in the world health organization to deal with this pandemic and future pandemics the obvious answer is yes or look at climate change where the us and china combined produce 40 percent of global greenhouse gases Um, neither of us can solve that problem acting alone. It has to be done acting together. And in 2015, uh, Obama and Xi Jinping had worked out a common position, which was expressed in the Paris Climate Accord, which Trump then withdrew from. Uh, So those are examples of how you can have uh, competition and cooperation at the same time. And I think a moral policy has to do that. And the the people say, yes, but does that cooperation on these global or transnational issues mean that you have to do nothing about human rights? Absolutely not. We can still object to the changes that China is making in the status of Hong Kong or the way China treats citizens in Xinjiang while cooperating on something like pandemics or climate change. So a moral activity or moral policy in the future is going to require a president who can explain that to the people. Unfortunately, we're now in a situation where it's either or China is either the enemy across the board or it's uh, a trade partner. And the answer is going to be both. As for the question about um, small powers and superpowers, um, I think these these criteria, my three-dimensional mora- uh, cr- uh, uh, criteria for morality, judging morality, can be applied to, to any size state. But it's also worth noticing that the circumstances, uh, going back to Arnold Wolfer's phrase, of a small state in a precarious position are different from a superpower. Stanley Hoffman, my former colleague at Harvard, used to say that... Uh, The Americans were, and the French were the two countries which expressed uh, moralism most overtly in their foreign policy. Uh, The French couldn't get away with it as easily as the Americans. They were stuck on the European continent with large, threatening neighbors. So the Americans, with just Canadians and Mexicans in two oceans could be as moralistic as they wanted. So yes, your power position allows you to indulge indulge your morality somewhat differently, but you can still um, have small states which within the circumstances they face uh, can have a three-dimensional moral policy. And since rarely is it a matter of survival um, uh, in international politics, the room for morality uh, is larger than people realize for both large and
0: small states. So we've got another couple questions here. We have um, a question from uh, Heidi Zamzow, who's a PhD student here at the LSC, apparently zooming in from, I don't know, somewhere on the West Coast in the United States. Um, and so her question is, since morals are culturally embedded, how do leaders reconcile cultural differences when crafting foreign policy, taking actions, or put a a different way, do you believe that there are universal morals uh, that transcend cultural differences? And I I think that's probably the deeper point there. And maybe while you think about that, there's a question here from Emile Cunning, who is a student at uh, the Institute of the Americas here at UCL in town, um, has the advancement of technology and warfare, i.e. drones, changed the way in which presidents and their cabinet make decisions in foreign policy? And does this have implications for morally grounded decision making? So one question about moral relativism or universal Uh, values and and morals and ethics, and and another about, I think, maybe kind of even more generally, I know that you picked this up in the tail end of the book, on the impact of technology on all of this.
1: Uh, Again, a pair of very nice and interesting questions. Um, Obviously, uh, morality is affected by culture. Um, uh, Evolutionary biologists point out that uh, There is a moral impulse in uh, our our species, and that ability to concern ourselves for others and work with others is one of the reasons why uh, we can build bridges and send people to the moon and giraffes or wolves can't. Uh, So uh, it's an important part of our evolution. But as Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, has pointed out, Uh, it's expressed very differently in different cultures. So even if a moral impulse is universal, uh, it comes out differently in different cultures. And that means that uh, we should not expect to see our own culture uh, as the only source of morality. But that's where I turn to, in the book, to um, uh, John Rawls. And uh, what Rawls said is, don't worry, don't try to, have one single liberal culture. It's not possible. But you can have a sort of decent respect for the opinions of others. And if they're not too egregious in the way they're treating what they see as rights and uh, duties of their citizens, uh, you can treat them well. So we call this uh, uh, the law of peoples. Uh, And I think there's something in that that uh, Rawls 's adaptation of his liberalism to the international level being uh, not quite as strict or stringent as uh, as when he applies it domestically, and are there any expressions of this international? Yes, um, international humanitarian law the so called Geneva conventions are indeed uh, binding on uh, all states, and uh, it 's also interesting to notice that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 uh, uh, was uh, not just an American imposition. It actually had much broader international support than that. And uh, uh, it's applied and interpreted differently by different countries. But there still are some basic uh, uh, grounds there to find uh, common cause. So if you accept that view of... Uh, People like Hayden and Walls that uh, there is uh, universal morality, but it's going to come out in different ways. Then we wind up thinking of uh, uh, ways to apply our own culture that's not too imperialistic or overbearing. As for the issue of technology, I, there is a section at the end of the book in which I talk about uh, the way technology is making some moral decisions more more difficult. Uh, and we saw this a lot in the obama administration where obama had set up particular procedures to make sure that certain decisions when drones were used were not taken automatically some could be taken uh not fully automatically but uh, without presidential approval others uh, though uh, required a, a central approval uh so he was obama was very concerned about making sure that uh, both not just drone technology but also cyber technology, uh, that certain things uh, required a presidential approval or a White House approval, others that did not. This is going to increase. We're going to have more and more problems with this as we look at uh, the role of artificial intelligence and the issues of uh, uh, how you can make deep fakes and when you interfere and don't interfere with these processes. So uh, it's a it's going to be a topic. If you want to write a thesis or an academic paper, this is a growth topic.
0: I think if, if questions are a sign of uh, appreciation, I mean, the thing is, it, the register is just going up and up here. We're w- well over 50 questions right now. I've got two um, very different questions. Uh, um, one coming... Um, From a a fellow named Glenn Smith, who's part of the um, U.S. Southern Command, Um, uh, and the question is, how much has the morality of secretaries of state impacted U.S. foreign policy since 1945? And so I think, you know, maybe kind of more generally on this question, you know, when we set aside maybe let's say a transformational leader like a Nelson Mandela. I mean, most most leaders, who they have around them matters a whole lot um, in shaping both kind of um, the choice set that they have, that they're, you know, that they're dealing with on a regular basis. And um, and so I think this is a kind of, this is an interesting question Uh, on a different angle. And this brings us back to, I think, the question also that Leslie posed. This comes from Clara McClendon, who's an LSE alum, um, looks like a, a, she was a double major or, in media and communications and in development. She's wondering if you can apply your framework, your moral reasoning framework, to help us understand the current uprising sparked by the um, death of George Floyd and the local and national government involvement in this widespread widespread event including means for legitimizing force and violence and of course the paradox of our actions at home while we criticize foreign enemies for employing similar tactics well so that's a very kind of broad question but i'm i'm wondering if uh, just to follow up with 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 her, her line of questioning and if you can Spend a little bit of time in helping us think through what the implications of this are and the the way that the American government has dealt with it both at 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 the national level and i think um you know at at the more at the state and and local levels
1: well again uh, good questions uh, Secretaries of state can make a big difference my My book focuses on presidents because it's a short book, and I wanted to. Uh, simplify the task, um, but uh, secretaries of state are, are mentioned and their role mentioned. Um, if, if you look back to Harry Truman, um, it's interesting that uh, George Marshall and Dean Acheson were both very important in shaping the early decisions, such as the Marshall Plan uh, or the uh, uh, the way in which the Truman Doctrine was explained. Um, And if you look at somebody like um, in the Reagan administration, uh, if you look at the different advice that George Shultz gave the president, uh, as opposed to Casper Weinberger, the defense secretary, you can uh, see that the secretary of state made a big difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, Indeed, at one point, Weinberger tried to have Shultz fired uh, and Reagan backed Shultz. Shultz believed that you could work, with the with the Soviets, um, and he drew the analogy that uh, foreign policy was like cultivating a garden—you planted, you weeded, you hoed—but you played it for the long run and institutional terms. Uh, and that approach actually was what Reagan picked up in his second term. So secretaries of state matter. I'm just speaking personally. I. Mm. I worked uh, for Cyrus Vance in the Carter administration, and uh, there were many times when a decision would come in, which I would sit there, and it was a question of how you traded off your security interests uh, versus human rights. And uh, Vance uh, very often said, no, we've got to take human rights more seriously. If you had a different secretary of state, that might've come out differently. So secretaries of state matter. on the question of, of uh, framework and uh, applying to the current situation, uh, I think when people talk about institutional racism, uh, there's a lot of uh, truth in that. That uh, Let's go back to the origins of the United States. The American uh, founding uh, fathers, and they were fathers at that time, um, Uh, were steeped in European liberalism. Um, But they also uh, uh, agreed to some compromises which were uh, totally inconsistent with that liberalism. So Thomas Jefferson, all men are created equal and went on holding slaves. And the U.S. Constitution to get a compromise that allowed the southern and northern colonies to unite into one union um, uh, wrote slavery into the constitution. Uh, It took a civil war 100 years later to uh, begin that process of breaking it Uh, and then it took another 100 years after the civil war until you began to get uh, uh, protests which broke the pattern of of Jim Crow and segregation Uh, and essentially uh, what you're seeing today I think is Uh, a continuation of that same tradition, which is some institutional racism still exists, despite the fact that we've elected a African-American president. But if you're a normal, everyday uh, uh, person walking on the streets, your fear of the police is going to be different if you're black than if you're white and uh, people are at the, the George Floyd's murder essentially has dramatized that. Uh, if you take a long enough picture, you can say, well, based on an original sin, the Americans are making a degree of progress rather slowly and imperfectly, and that civil protest is has been part of the progress that's being made. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether that continues here. So again, if you think of, of uh, does this fit? Yes, if you look at uh, intentions uh, of, of the leaders, and if you look at uh, the consequences over the long run, uh, they matter, the question that becomes difficult is on in the means, uh, what role does violence play? Most of the protesters say peaceful protest is important. Uh, there are some who take it a step further and, and in violence. I think over the long term, what we learned from 68 and Martin Luther King is that uh, there's more to be gained from nonviolence in a democratic society than from violence. But it's a, it's, it, you know, uh, we're going through a very fraught period now and um, uh, you have to take a pretty long perspective to, to have hope that, uh, that this current set of protests will lead to reforms which will continue to diminish the institutional racism that goes back to the origins.
0: Thanks. You know, I'm kind of picking up on the current situation. I, I personally have been very struck in the past couple of days by the truly extraordinary statements issued by um uh, James, General James Mattis, the former Secretary of Defense under Trump, and uh, Admiral uh, Mike Mullen, uh, the former chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, both have f- very forcefully um, condemned the president's responses to the protests over the death of George Floyd. And we have a question here from Patrick Jarvis, who is an LSE alum in international relations, he wants to know, what do you make of the, of the public split between the commander-in-chief and the top military leadership? And how effectively do you think the Joint Chiefs will be able to maintain this stance? And I might just add here, I mean, you know, yesterday, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, issued a memo to the military brass reminding them of their constitutional responsibilities which is and then you know mark esper the secretary of defense has said he's opposed to deploying troops so when i said there were three crises i mean something is emerging in terms of civilian military relations that is unusual and quite exceptional i think and i'm you know so just to pick up on patrick jarvis's good question It would be great to hear hear your thoughts on that. And then let me go to a question from one of our students. His name is Tim. He's from Taiwan. And he asked this. Also, I think just a very important question right now. Trump's foreign policy often runs against those of his allies. I think he means America's allies here. Creating rifts on issues such as the environment and international organizations. What happens when the moral reasonings of traditional Western allies differ? You know, in what ways is that significant? What are the short, near, long-term implications of that? So that's a lot.
1: Well, I I think the uh, question about the military and civilian leadership is quite interesting. Uh, if if you look at um, what I call institutional racism, yes, there is institutional racism in the U.S., but one of the institutions which has done the most to overcome it is the military. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that struck me when I served in the Pentagon was that this was a place where race really had, uh, didn't play a significant daily role. There were, uh, uh, and the fact that that leaders, military leaders, will take the positions they have um, illustrates that their oath is to the Constitution, which, as they say, uh, guarantees the rights of peaceful protest to all citizens. Their oath is not just to the president. Um, it's, It's also interesting that, I mean, Donald Trump basically sees this as a replay of 1968, in which Richard Nixon used the law and order uh, uh, appeal to get reelected uh, or get elected. And Trump's going to use it to try to get reelected. So uh, Trump is using his racist dog whistles, as well as an open appeal to law and order, to try to put together a coalition for his re-election. And when he had his photo op in Lafayette Square holding the Bible in front of a church, um, that was basically, uh, uh, you might call it a, uh, uh, in something that's descended from reality TV. After all, Trump never served in the military. And uh, while he likes to talk about the military, he doesn't really understand the military, there's a big gap between uh, the attitudes uh, of the American military and the attitudes of the top civilian politician. Um, And if, uh, you know, they have to salute when ordered directly, but they also have the capacity to resign uh, if they're ordered to do something which they think violates their oath to the constitution. So I think the it, it's a very interesting period. I would argue that um, uh, again, going back to this question of institutions and racism, the fact that the military has done a pretty good job of overcoming institutional racism uh, is one of those aspects of, uh, uh, of, of where you can hope, have some hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, the game is still in play. As for allies and, um, uh, and when they disagree, uh, this is a very interesting question because Trump has taken the position, and has been echoed by Secretary of State Pompeo, that alliances and multilateral institutions uh, are not in our interest. But that they, the it makes us restrain ourselves, and if we are like Gulliver, uh, the most powerful uh, creature on the, in, in this little planet. Uh, if we just throw our own weight around, uh, we'll get more of what we want and you shouldn't let Lilliputians tie you down with alliances and gossamer strings. Um, indeed Pompeo has said some of this, uh, quite openly, but the, uh, the problem with that is, and they complain about, uh, you know, other countries are free riders, allies are getting a free ride and putting the burden all on us. What they forget is when the others are a free rider, we're still left driving the bus. And uh, in that sense, this narrow transactionalism of how much did we get on any particular deal is a very myopic way of defining the national interest. Uh, Trump's phrase America first is not necessarily uh, extraordinary. I mean, I'm sure Macron must say France first, Uh, but uh, the question is not, is it America first? It's how do you define your national interest, broadly or narrowly? And the narrow transactionalism, uh, which doesn't include the interests of allies or think in terms of multilateral institutions, basically weakens us over the long run. That's why George Schultz's metaphor of thinking of foreign policy as a, a garden, a long-run project, is much better than thinking of it as a real estate bazaar. Uh, so I think what this approach toward allies that we've seen is that it reduces American power.
0: Right. Um, I, I think maybe... Um uh, this is implied in the question, the answer that you just gave, but it, it, it might be helpful to flesh this part of it out. Mariana Rosales um, has put a question to us. She's at the embassy of Costa Rica. So in Washington, DC. Um, and um, asked about using morality as a tool to justify trade policy. And here she's saying, you know, for example, buy American versus strengthening the international trade system or international supply chains. And, you know, I, I, I think this is a useful question because so much of what we think about when we, we talk about these questions of morality, it's really, it, it it's, it's um, maybe naturally it's focused on questions about the use of force, you know, um, kinetic force. and, and, and so I think she's kind of pushing us in a in a different direction here and i'd I'd be interested in uh, and I think many other people would be interested, especially given the direction that the Trump administration has gone to hearing your thoughts on that um and then a question that um comes from um boy this his his name is harder to pronounce than mine Dror... uh Yuro Livker, who is an LSE alum from Washington, based in Washington, DC, but is now teaching at Eton College here in the UK. Um, whether it's in 2021 or 2025, you know where this question's going, Donald Trump will leave office one day. Do you think his morals and decisions will have a lasting impact on American foreign policy and moral leadership and I think maybe I you know there was a second question, but I will leave it there. And I think this is a, the I think the larger question here, or the question that this it's, it, it dovetails with something that I have been thinking about myself. A lot of people think that when you know you get one administration replaces another, that it's you can easily change course. And I think the question here is, is um, you know whether there's a let's say, a, a Biden administration comes in, whether there's some kind of snapback to the other position, or whether there's some kind of path dependency that the United States is on here. And so that it's, in a sense, larger than Donald Trump, where the US is. And so so two different questions for you.
1: Uh, on the question of uh, morality and trade, uh, that's very interesting because the classical liberal position is that trade is a positive sum game from which all can gain. Uh, And there's a lot in that. I mean, if you think of comparative advantage and you go back to, uh, you know, uh, Cobden and Bright and Mill and so forth, we can, this is a long tradition. But it's also true that even when everybody can gain, not all gain equally. Uh, So even if you find a situation where increasing trade uh, makes the country richer, it may make some people in the country poorer. And that's been one of the problems with uh, rapid globalization, which economic globalization, which has been advanced by technological changes, which have led to supply chains that are very transnational, modern communications and Transportation is made possible uh, things uh, which lead to broad changes in patterns of income inequality inside countries, even as they may be better for the country as a whole. So you could argue that um, uh, the morality of trade. Uh, depends on the level of the analysis that you're taking Mm -hmm. and uh, that the elites who paid, uh, who basically looked at the national level didn't pay enough attention to the inequalities at local levels. The fellow in Ohio whose factory has been transported to Asia Mm -hmm. and lost his job and there's no replacement for it, uh, sees the world of trade differently than the Uh, the person who was doing trade statistics in uh, Washington, D.C. So in that sense, I think Trump was able to pick up on the populism that arose from the uh, inequalities that globalization uh, uh, created. Um, And what we're seeing now is probably a, a degree of decoupling of supply chains, a reduction of some degree of of economic globalization, but it won't be complete. Um, And the interesting questions will be uh, how it's going to be managed so that it doesn't get out of hand. A a moral foreign policy uh, will have to ask not just how do we preserve a positive sum game for everybody, Mm -hmm. but how do we make sure that those who are suffering from the positive sum game that benefits everybody uh, are compensated by those who who gain. Um, And and that, I think, means that there's a close relationship between uh, certain domestic policies uh, related to income inequality and the overall position, uh, international morality. Uh, So a a good question, and there's been a lot written, my colleague Danny Roderick and others have have, have worked on, on this, on, on whether Trump will having a la- have a lasting impact. Um, I think part of the degree of his impact will depend upon whether he's reelected or not. Uh, as one of my uh, European friends put it, you can hold your breath for four years. It's hard to hold your breath for eight years. Uh, there has been clearly damage to the structure of American alliances, damage to international institutions. Certain places there will be snapback. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, on the Paris Climate Accords, um, Biden, if he's elected, or any Democrat would rejoin the Paris Climate Accord on day one of his administration. Um, uh, On the other hand, trying to rescue the uh Iran a nuclear agreement may be more complex, but I think a Democrat would try to put that back on the track it was on before. Uh but there'll be other cases where uh there's been a creation of a sense of mistrust. Uh if the Americans are a people who can elect somebody as capricious and self-centered as Trump, uh yes we might be happy with Biden for a while, but how do we know whether he will be replaced by Trump Jr. or whatever, and uh, the so in that sense, I think there is some some damage. Uh, some recent polls taken in in Germany, for example, show changes in attitudes toward the U.S. among uh, some younger Germans. Uh, if that goes on for eight years, it's going to to uh, have a, a bigger effect than if it's uh, four years. Four years, uh, if it's twenty twenty one, there'll be a certain amount of snapback, but it's going to have to accommodate the fact uh, that a good deal of damage has been done. Eight years, it'll be much harder.
0: So we've uh, we have um, our audience base is we've got people from all over. So people have joined us from Turkey, Italy, Canada, Mexico, Israel, Pakistan, Indonesia, Brazil. So. Um, I guess the word is getting out and it's spreading, Joe. So look, I have a question for you. I want you to put, I'm going to ask you to put a different hat on, your your Dean Lee hat, you know, Um, and, um, you know, I was struck when, by a comment that you made very early in the book, um, where you say investing in the role of moral values in the conduct of nation is not in quotes a career enhancing topic for a young scholar, and we have a lot of budding academics that are, uh, you know, kind of on the on the platform today. I, I think, and um, and this is undoubtedly true, um, but as you effectively show in the book, it seems to me um, that's unfortunate because moral values do play a role in foreign policy, and while one can quibble with the grade that you give for one president or another, you pretty persuasively show that, that the quality of a leader's moral judgment, it matters. And so what can great institutions like, like Harvard, like the LSE, do to basically change or, or modify the incentive structure um, to make the study of moral reasoning and ethics in international affairs, I don't know, more of a career enhancing, if you will, uh, area of, of research for young scholars to encourage more people basically to go down the path that you've just gone down. Um, I'll leave. Well,
1: I, um, I, I think the, uh, this may be cyclical and the cycle may be starting to turn. Uh, Americans uh, tended to be pretty moralistic about foreign policy uh, in the uh, early part of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson was an expression of this. And then the reaction against Wilson and uh, uh, the isolation of the 30s led to the the view that America had gotten itself into such trouble by being overly moralistic. So the period of the 50s, 60s, 70s, so forth, uh, was the period dominated by the thought of Kennan and uh, Morgenthau and others. It's always intrigued me that Kennan, near the end of his life, uh, uh, came to the conclusion that he had misjudged Wilson that he ranked him higher than he originally had. He'd been quite a uh, uh, mm-hmm. duper about Wilson and Wilson's moralism in the early stages. So I think it, I think the, the cycle may be turning, but certainly in graduate school and in the profession for a long time, uh, the view was that the problem with American approaches to foreign policy was too much moralism. Mick um, uh, edited a very good book on this, uh, sure. that pointed this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the question is, can we get back to a more balanced view, whereas you keep realism and you keep a strategic sense, but you don't take the position that it excludes all moralism and that liberalism and realism can complement each other, uh, not necessarily have to be either or. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what I'm trying to do in the book. I taught, as for the Kennedy School, um, I taught a course on um, ethics and foreign policy. In fact, the book is a, is a reflection of the of basically half a dozen years of of teaching that course because I wanted these young people who were going to go into government uh, positions um, to realize that it's not either or. you can have both. You can be a realist and a liberal uh, and have a strategic sense all at the same time. So I think I think LSE is well positioned to do this, um, and I hope the Kennedy School is as well.
0: Yeah. So integrating it into the curriculum through courses is clearly a, a way to to be doing this, and um, um, I think we have. It looks like we have time for um, maybe one more question here. Um, so there's a, an interesting question that has come in that in some ways goes back to the point that one of the points that Mick raised that uh, early on about competency. Um, um, the question is from um, Shima. Um, how do you interpret the divergent views between China and the Western world, the EU and the US? Um, in terms of norms and universal values and the question here is is the moral that you mention in your book a concept based on a western value system and i think what one might maybe add to this is there are a lot of people who point to the so-called beijing model as you know one that that prides. Uh, and I don't think this is what Mick was referring to, but it 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 um puts a heavy emphasis on on competency and um and juxtaposes it you know to the uh to the American the Washington model and and so forth. Um so that is um and then I we have one other question and I'm gonna get and then I'll give you the last couple of minutes. Question is from Justin Webb, who's an LSE alum. And Justin, I know who you are, also a BBC broadcaster. And it says, let's say there's a vaccine or vaccines developed in the next year for the novel coronavirus. Scientists, doctors, international institutions, Bill Gates, etc., all want it distributed without recourse to national ability to pay. They have, in some respects, the whip hand, don't they? A model for transnational morality, the ability to overcome national politics? Or actually, is it perfectly moral for national leaders to look after their own in the first instance?
1: Great great questions, both of them. Um, China is not going to have the same values regarding how they interpret human rights, for example, as the U.S. does. So when people talk about a liberal international order, they have to distinguish two aspects. One is the domestic uh, human rights aspects. And there, I think it's simply a fact that you're going to have differences of what human rights mean in the two cultures. That doesn't mean you can't have a rules-based system which is related to international institutions, so if you ask, can we have a, uh, a framework like the Paris framework on climate? Can we have a world trade organization? Can we have a world health organization? There are ways in which you could find a common interest between China and the U.S. on the institutional part of the international order, even if they're going to be have to agree to disagree on the human rights values. On the question of vaccines and uh, and, uh how they should be distributed and so forth. I've written op eds saying, imagine that Truman, that Trump had taken the position on the question of pandemics and vaccines that uh, uh, Truman took with the Marshall Plan. Instead of saying it's either or, suppose we'd said we can transform the world by creating an international COVID defense fund for. Uh, poor countries, and we'll do it partly out of humanitarian interest, partly out of self-interest. Uh, if the poor countries become a reservoir for second, third, and fourth waves of the virus, that's bad for us. Uh, if we can make a major Marshall plan for helping them afford and uh, these new vaccines and other aspects of a COVID defense fund, that's good for them. And it's good for us, just the way the Marshall Plan was good for us and good for them. So it goes back to this point that I make in the book, mm-hmm. which is it's not do you defend your national interest? It's how do you define your national interest? And that's where the role for morality comes in.
0: Joe, I think on that very hopeful, as you might put it, liberal realist note, um, we're gonna we're gonna leave it, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a great pleasure um, to have the opportunity to listen to um, to Joe Nye today. A lot of food for thought here. I know we didn't get to every question. All I can say is they've been preserved for posterity. Those questions, uh, and we'll send them to Joe. Uh, but, Joe, on on behalf of the LSE, I want to thank you for taking time today to to share your thoughts about. About America's future, and uh, that it really could not come at a more uh, critical um, moment. Uh, to everybody else out there, to to Mick and to Leslie, thank you very much for for joining us. And to everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, take care.
1: Thank you, Peter. Thank you, you Joe. Thank you. Thanks. And nice to be back at LSE. Good, Good to, to have you back. back. Good to have you back.
3: <laughs>